0: Well, it'd be really helpful to have your Bibles open, your Bible app ready. So Luke chapter 5, continuing in our new series, Encountering Jesus. So week three, there's also an outline on the back of the news. So if you find that helpful, there's also some Korean and Dinka translation points on there, if that's of help to you. But let's pray. Gracious God, how we need your help. We need your help in so many ways. We ask this day, please, would you be at work in the power of your spirit, that we might really understand how deep our need really is, that you alone provide the cure, and that as we put our trust in your son, that we can grasp and know and revel in the news that we have forgiven. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, absolutely everyone was there. It was quite the eclectic gathering. So people are from a diversity of place, the backwater villages of Galilee, the region of Judea, and from the big smoke, from the epicenter, the spiritual epicenter of the land, the city of Jerusalem. And of course, those gathered are not just from a diversity of place, but they also reflect a diversity of people. Even those suspicious of Jesus, so the theological heavyweights, the theological bigwigs of the day, they are there. Pharisees, who were a relatively small but influential movement with emphasis on the law, teachers of the law, also called scribes, who had particular political clout and teaching influence, especially in Judea. What Luke wants us to see is as the news of Jesus goes out, the crowds of people are drawn in. In one way or another, they're waiting and watching to witness what Jesus would say and do. Now, of course, that shouldn't come as a huge surprise. They've heard reports. Some right there have likely seen him in action, What will happen next? Well, I don't think anyone would have anticipated what actually does happen next on that particular day. Here Jesus is, it's a uh, packed house. There were no COVID density restrictions or fire regulations or anything like that. In fact, there are so many people that you can't even get through the front door, which presents a bit of a dilemma if your goal is actually get to Jesus. But not for the four fine, laterally thinking friends of the paralyzed man, The place is packed, the door is jammed, but no worries, challenge accepted to the roof. In the ancient world, buildings often had flat roofs with stairways that led to the top. Roofs were usually made of mud and straw. So they wouldn't have just needed to quietly remove some of the tiles, but they would have had to, in fact, literally, as Luke puts it, Unroof the roof by digging through it. So, this would have made for the most spectacular scene. I mean, can you imagine right here today in full swing of a gathering when all of a sudden we might hear some footsteps across the roof above, then a few small fragments start floating down to the ground, only that for to, to escalate, and perhaps even a head pops through a hole at some point, and then suddenly larger chunks of debris start falling to the ground until eventually a man emerges suspended from ropes on a on a stretcher, being lowered inch by inch by inch until he's right down in front of the speaker. Now, I'm sure you could have heard. A pin drop, if this was some sort of gathering on a Sunday, you could guarantee the preacher would just keep pressing on for sure. But, but they're all probably focusing on this person coming from above. They're, they're parting on the floor below. Their eyes are fixed on them. Can you imagine that happening here? If that happened on a Sunday and then you went off wherever you go on your front lines during the week and someone happened to ask you, what was church like on a weekend you likely wouldn't be commenting on the music or the preaching or the coffee, but someone (laughs) dug through the roof and was lowered down. A paralysed man was lowered to the ground. But here's the thing. Despite the unconventional arrival, it's not the entry which is the most shocking part of the story. In fact, did you notice, Luke barely gives us any detail of the arrival. The most shocking part of the story is not the arrival of the man, but the radical claim of Jesus. Jesus, who knows our deepest need, provides the unexpected cure and invites us to respond. First, Jesus knows our deepest need. Verse 18. Some men came carrying a paralysed man on a mat, and tried to take him into the house to lay him before Jesus. When they could not find a way to do this because of the crowd, they went up on the roof and lowered him on his mat through the tiles into the middle of the crowd right in front of Jesus. When Jesus saw their faith, he said, "Friend, your sins are forgiven." It's hard not to imagine the man's arrival causing incredible chaos there that day. Uh, Today, it would cause an occupational health and safety Twitter storm. People would be getting hit on the head, babies would be crying, and insurance claims would have to be lodged. Yet phenomenally, absolutely extraordinarily, as this man is lowered into the middle, so right into the thick of the crowd, interrupting and disrupting the gathering, right in front of Jesus, amidst all of the ensuing chaos of this unconventional entry... Jesus doesn't notice the mess of the room, but the mess of the man's spiritual condition. You can imagine, there would have been mud, dust, straw, everywhere. But Jesus looks deep. Everyone is probably expecting another healing. Luke has even just reminded us that the power of the Lord was with Jesus to heal the sick that something greater is going to happen. Friend, your sins are forgiven. When people heard that, they would have been shocked on a whole number of levels, in a whole bunch of ways. To us, when we, when we hear that, Jesus saying that to this, this man, it, it might seem politically incorrect, or it might seem pastorally insensitive. The mates have just carried their friend for who knows... How long? They've gone to extraordinary extent. They've taken significant risks. They've dug through a roof to get their paralyzed friend in front of Jesus. Jesus, the, the renowned healer. I'd imagine if you're going to do this, that'd actually be quite perilous. It'd be quite dangerous, especially from this height. So don't recommend next Sunday you actually give this a go. If you are the person being lowered down and there's you know, two people on either end with ropes, you would really be hoping that the person controlling the ropes on the, on the leg end certainly isn't moving faster than on the head, otherwise you're going to have a mid-air slippery dip or something like that, and you really don't want the opposite either. It, it would have also been incredibly embarrassing if you ever come late to a meeting, you know, normally you want to kind of sneak in as much as possible. Well, they're very late to this meeting and they've got to come right through the roof, they're desperate for Jesus' help. And he says to them, your sins are forgiven. You can almost imagine thinking, "Um, Jesus, I don't want to point out the obvious. You know, our friend was on a stretcher being lowered in, but we have come for him to be healed. You can imagine the paralyzed man saying, um, thanks, Jesus, but have you noticed my legs? Jesus is pushing to a much deeper need. It's like Jesus saying, you think your biggest problem is that you can't walk, but I'm here to tell you that it's actually your sin. Your fundamental need is not actually your physical healing. Your fundamental need is forgiveness. Now, let's be clear. When Jesus says that his sins are forgiven he's in no way diminishing the seriousness of this man's disability. Nor is he necessarily suggesting that this man's paralysis is in some way directly connected to his personal sin. There were those who believed that at the time, and today, sometimes Christians, I think, quite unhelpfully suggest that as well. So there's no doubt that our personal sin can cause us all sorts of problems. Sometimes our personal sin can be clearly and directly connected to the brokenness we experience and that which we inflict. But it would be an error to suggest that all our ailments are always related to some personal sin you can pinpoint. Now, in an instant, Jesus is opening a window to a much bigger problem A problem that may not be immediately visible, but is universally applicable. Sin is real, and it's the biggest disease to ever grip the world. Now, in our culture, that's a really offensive thing to say. See, the big surprise for us in this story is not what Jesus says, not because of his claim to forgive sin but because we're taken aback by the notion that sin is important at all. It's not that we don't like sin. We don't like the idea of sin. It offends our our sensibilities that we're the ones who decide what's right and wrong for us. That actually, I'm really unaccountable to me, myself and I. I mean, I don't know if you've ever had the experience when washing up, if if two people are washing up and you're at the sink, uh, so I'm washing up and someone's drying, I don't even like it when I wash up and hand the plate and gets handed back to me because it wasn't done properly. (laughs) Let alone there's a deeper problem of sin that's right at the core of my heart. But our resistance to recognise the problem doesn't negate its reality, its prevalence. There was a uh, drive-through testing for SIN. We're all familiar with those now. You don't need to waste time queuing up, okay? Because the results are in. We've all tested positive. If I was to do a quick survey today, we can give this an experiment. This is a bit risky. Uh, But who here thinks that lying is wrong? Do you want to put up your hand? Who thinks that lying is wrong? There's never... Is this lying? Looks like a mixed crowd, okay? That's a bit of a problem for my next question, but... Okay, so if you think lying's wrong, second question, who here ever in their life has told a lie? See, not only does sin affect all of us and all of creation, not only do we experience the brokenness of that in a myriad of ways, but actually we're all part of the problem too. And sin doesn't just cripple our present, but on our own, by our own power, the effects of it are permanent. That's what Jesus lovingly sees. In my previous work before I was a minister, a good friend and colleague of mine had this amazing ability, honed over many years, where they could come into a particular context of an organisation, an organisation that was experiencing all sorts of complex problems, and they had this incredible way in which they could almost immediately get to the bottom and identify what was really at the heart of the issues that they were experiencing. That's what Jesus does here, but on a much more critical level. Even with the roof crumbling in, he can tune out all that noise and tune into our hearts. So often we can go to Jesus with all sorts of superficial things. We can kind of want God involved in our lives as an add-on to help us to make some minor renovations in our lives and achieve our purposes. But Jesus isn't into the superficial He looks deeply in and sees that the problem isn't just on the surface, but at the core. He doesn't just diagnose the symptoms, but he has identified the cause. Yet incredibly, that doesn't cause him to shun us or run away or just wallpaper over the problem or put it in the too hard basket, but he provides the unexpected cure of forgiveness in himself. So back to verse 20. When Jesus saw their faith, he said, friend, your sins are forgiven. The Pharisees and the teachers of the law began thinking to themselves, who is this fellow? He speaks blasphemy. Who can forgive sins but God alone? To claim to have authority to forgive sins is no less than the claim to be God that's what we see in the reaction of the Pharisees and the teachers of the law. They weren't thinking to themselves when Jesus uh, said this, hmm, interesting, Jesus thinks he has authority to forgive sins. They're thinking, that is blasphemy. Jesus is claiming to be God. In Jewish law, that's one of the most serious charges that someone can accuse you of. It's, it's punishable by death. This is serious. You can't just go around indirectly or directly claiming to be God. But by declaring forgiveness in front of everyone, that's exactly what Jesus is doing. Can you imagine for a moment if before church, uh, Kate came up to me and she said, oh, Adam, I've done a terrible thing. This is pretty awkward. But before church, before our service, I was really intrigued by the beauty of Eugene's guitar. So I just wandered up the front and I picked it up, which I probably shouldn't have, and I dropped it and now it's in two parts, and I'm pretty sure guitars are meant to be in one part only. Well, as Kate told me that, imagine if I said, I forgive you. Well, that doesn't really work, does it? Because it's only the person against whom the offence has been committed that has the right to forgive. That would be up to you, Gene. But the biblical worldview is that when we sin, which we all do in whatever way, Not only can that be against a person, but ultimately, because we live in God's world, that all sin is actually ultimately against God. Therefore, only God can forgive. That's why the religious folk are so upset. Who does Jesus think he is? God? Now, they're asking the right question, but they fail to take the next step that it's not willing to entertain the possibility of the truth of the answer. See, while we would sooner dismiss Jesus because we don't understand the importance of his claims, the reason the religious folk dismissed him because they knew just how weighty his claims were. They knew that to accept Jesus would be to accept his claim that he was God. But that's exactly what Jesus wants them to see. We continue. Jesus knew what they were thinking. And he asked, Why are you thinking these things in your hearts? Which is easier? Verse 23. Which is easier? To say, your sins are forgiven, or to say, get up and walk? But I want you to know that the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sins. So he said to the paralyzed man, I tell you, get up, take your mat, and go home. When Jesus says, which is easier, to say your sins are forgiven, or get up and walk, now at first glance, you might say, you might think, well, actually, they're both really easy to say, but it's much harder for them to have an effect. In fact, they're impossible for us to do. And forgiveness, well, that's actually really hard to see. So Jesus is saying, whilst you can't see the outward effects of forgiveness, which I've declared, you should take this act of healing as confirmation that the man is forgiven. That's not to say the man's sin was caused uh, was the cause of his physical problem. It's not to say that we, when we receive forgiveness, we're also physically healed, even though this is, of course, a glimpse of the full effects of that we'll see in new creation. It's also not saying that the healing was a reward for their faithfulness. But to show us who Jesus is and that he alone is the one who offers the ultimate cure. Which is easier, to forgive or to heal? Well, it depends on the person saying it. But they're both in Jesus' wheelhouse of authority Because he is the Son of Man. When you hear that title, Son of Man, it's a really important title. It comes from Daniel chapter 7. Jesus, of course, would have been fully aware of that. And in that chapter, the Son of Man is envisaged as the representative of God's true people. The Son of Man is opposed by evil. God vindicates him, rescues him, proves him to be right, and then gives him comprehensive authority. He is the long-awaited one who has come to rule, who dispenses both God's judgment, but also God's forgiveness. The one who will set things right, deal with sin and the effects of sin. Hear what Jesus is saying. He's saying, I am that one, that's me. Right now, on earth, I have that authority. On the cross... I will deal with the weight of sin and death. On my return, I will bring sin and death to an end. And right now, he invites us to respond. So verse 25. Immediately, he stood up in front of them, took what he had been lying on, and went home praising God. Everyone was amazed and gave praise to God. They were filled with awe and said we have seen remarkable things today. So Jesus' critics are faced with a massive problem that in light of the evidence, there's only two options. Jesus is committing an unthinkable act of blasphemy or Jesus is the long-awaited Son of Man. He's both Messiah and God. They're the two, two options they're faced with. If they think that this is a lie then they can walk away. But if in light of the evidence, regardless of how surprising it might seem to them, they come to see the claim is true, then the only option that remains is to put their trust in Jesus too, through faith. See, the glue that connects us with the forgiveness that Jesus offers is faith. Not faith that It'll be all right. Not faith in ourselves or our deeds, but faith that is trust in Jesus alone. Back to verse 20. When Jesus saw their faith, he said, friend, your sins are forgiven. Jesus didn't see the mess, but he saw their faith. Note that it wasn't their good intentions, it wasn't their track record, but the reason the man was forgiven was about who he put his trust in. They had come to Jesus. Jesus was the goal. Now, sometimes people get really worried that it's the faith of the friends being referenced here that somehow the paralysed, man received forgiveness by proxy through his mates, but it's overwhelmingly evident in the weight of of the New Testament and and the Gospels that that can't be the case, that that Jesus, who could tell the hearts of the religious folk, we've just seen that witnessed in this account, must have also known the heart of the paralysed man. But here's the thing. Jesus knows our hearts too. He knows our deepest need And he alone is the cure. You don't need to furiously track him down. You don't need to earn enough points to get a place before him. You don't even need to dig through a roof somewhere. In fact, you can go to him right now. Jesus wants you to know that the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sins. last time I checked, you know where we are? On earth. Isn't that good news? Forgiveness is available today. But whether you decide to embrace it, it really comes down to two questions. Do you think you need forgiveness? And do you think Jesus has the authority to give it? Those are the two questions. Do you think you need forgiveness? And do you think Jesus has the authority to give it? To give it if you answered yes to both those questions then there's really just one obvious thing to do go to jesus for when you do he has five words that will change your life forever friend your sins are forgiven that's prayer Gracious God, we thank you so much in your extraordinary kindness and mercy and grace, your grace poured out in and through your Son, that not only do you know our deepest need, you know the full extent of that, the depth, the darkness of our need for forgiveness, Lord, that you have not shunned us or disassociated yourself from us or wallpapered over it, But you've carried the full weight of that on yourself. Lord, we thank you so much that we see that on the cross. We see the triumph of that in the resurrection and how we wait for the full effect of that when Jesus returns. Lord, we pray that you would help us to recognize our need for forgiveness, that we wouldn't try to work at that ourselves but that instead we will run to Jesus, who alone is the cure. Lord, please help us to renew and put our trust in him. Father, I especially pray today for anyone who has not yet received your forgiveness. Lord, perhaps someone who has real struggle accepting your forgiveness. Lord, may they see even a glimpse of the extraordinary nature of your grace may they have a clarity that Jesus alone is the one with authority to forgive. They might put their trust in him and know that great news today, that their sins are forgiven. So we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.